0: Next to Jesus' death and resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the events that take place here in Acts chapter 10 are the most important developments in the history of Christianity. If ever there was a power lunch, this is it. Up until Acts chapter 10, the church was made up mostly of Jews. In fact, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. But Jesus promised Peter the keys to the kingdom, and the man with those keys would go on to open the door of salvation to Jews and Samaritans and even Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, God is blazing a new trail, and Peter is leading the way. God uses a vision from heaven to open up Peter's mind, his heart, even his mouth, and eventually the community of God. A heavenly vision supplies Peter the courage to chart a new course. Peter learns that what God once called unclean, he now calls okay. And that includes both pork chops and Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 forever changes the scope of Christianity and the makeup of the church. I cannot overemphasize this chapter's significance. We pick up where we left off last Sunday in chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. Lydda was an Israeli city with a large Gentile population. It was 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about eight miles from the Mediterranean port of Joppa. Today Lydda, or its Old Testament name, Lod, is between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. It's home to the Ben-Gurion airport. Verse 33. There Peter found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Every morning... Mothers all over the world command their children to arise and make their bed. (laughs) And even those kids with two functional legs are rarely obedient. But Aeneas, a man who had been crippled for eight years, arose immediately. It was a miracle. His legs were strengthened. They were made limber. He began to walk. In miracle of miracles, he even made his bed. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The miracle was broadcast all across Sharon, the coastal plain, including Israel's two port cities, the Jewish port of Joppa and the Roman port of Caesarea. Now verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. The name is Aramaic for gazelle which is translated Dorcas, which is the Greek equivalent. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Apparently, this sister was somewhat of a celebrity. She had been a seamstress, maybe even a fashion designer. Friends were paying tribute to her skill. They were displaying her handiwork. Peter's about to put Jesus' handiwork on display. But Peter put them all out, the mourners that is, and he knelt down and prayed. And what I want you to notice here are the similarities between the methods of Peter and his master. See, Peter does some of the same things that Jesus did in raising Jairus' daughter from her deathbed. The first similarity was to put out the professional mourners. You know, first century Jews, they would pay women to weep and wail at their loved one's funeral, but it was a feigned grief. And both Jesus and Peter here, they had no tolerance for their crocodile tears. You see, I think God prefers to work his miracles in an atmosphere of faith and sincerity. But the similarities continue. And turning to the body, Peter said, Tabitha, arise. This was verbatim what Jesus had said to Jairus' daughter. Remember, he said, Talitha kume, or little girl, I say to you, arise. You know, you get the impression here that Peter knows he's in over his head. I mean, he's just a fisherman, not a miracle worker. And so he falls back on what he knows. He starts taking his cues from Jesus. You know, that's not really a bad thing to do. When you don't know what to do, just do what Jesus did. He recalls how Jesus handled the situation, and he follows him precisely. And Peter gets the same results. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. What a moment that was. So you got to hand it to Peter. This man who had been a chicken now has the courage of a lion. Peter's walking on water again. He's operating by faith. He's daring to trust Jesus even for the supernatural. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, a tanner was as close as you could get to an ancient taxidermist. He was skilled in dressing and preserving animal hides. And since a tanner worked with dead animals, the laws of Judaism considered him ceremonially unclean. This prohibited Simon the tanner from participating in the Jewish rituals of the temple. In fact, his trade was so despised by the Jews that he was forced to work outside the city. Because of the defilement associated with his craft, the Jewish Mishnah actually gave a tanner's wife the right to divorce him. It was that despised in their eyes. That Peter even stayed at the house of a tanner was another example of him doing what Jesus did. For Jesus befriended and identified with the outcasts. He reached out to the unreachable. He loved the unlovable. I'm so proud of Jesus. He reached out to those people no one else cared for. I'm sure Peter recalled the words of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You know, it's interesting. Peter seems to already be leaning in the direction of grace. But in chapter 10, he free falls. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Now, Caesarea was a Mediterranean port built by Herod the Great. He built it in honor of the Caesar. It was a magnificent city with a world-renowned harbor. Caesarea was Rome's political and military capital in Israel. It was home to the governor, and it was headquarters of the Roman occupation. And there was a Roman soldier there, stationed there, a Gentile, In Caesarea, by the name of Cornelius, verse 2 tells us that he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Of course, Cornelius was a Roman. He was from Italy. He was a centurion, which made him equal to our army sergeant. Cornelius was the backbone of their military. You know, it's interesting, whenever a centurion appears in the New Testament, it's usually in a favorable light. To rise to this rank, such a man had to be disciplined, and he had to prove trustworthy. In verse 1 here, we're told that Cornelius was in charge of the Italian regiment. This was a detachment that served as the Roman governor's personal bodyguard. I guess you could say Cornelius was the head of the secret service in Caesarea. Cornelius was also called a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who had tired of Roman and Greek paganism, the mythology of their gods. He was hungry for the one true God. He had embraced Judaism short of being circumcised. He was a sincere seeker. These God-fearers, they were sincere in their search for God. This particular man, he obeyed the law's moral demands, and he gave offerings to the local Jewish synagogue. These Roman God-fearers were good people, yet they were still lost people. And in all this man's good works, he had failed to find God. Well, it was about the ninth hour of the day, or three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. God heard Cornelius' prayer. Hey, God always hears the sincere prayer of a searching heart. God goes on and says, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Now, remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip had been called to leave a revival in Samaria to find a solitary seeker of God on a lonely, deserted highway toward Gaza. He preached Jesus to him. You know, God never allows the person who fears him and truly seeks him to return home empty-handed never. Whether it's the aborigine in Australia in the outback, or the little boy growing up under strict Islam, or the young girl born into Jewish orthodoxy, somehow, some way, God will get that sincere seeker of truth, the news about his son Jesus. Reminds me of a young girl I heard of who always asked the question, what about the man on the island who's never heard the gospel? In fact, this had been an obstacle to her faith, constantly questioning that. This same girl, though, once went on a mission trip to Uganda. And on an island in the middle of Lake Victoria, she shared the gospel with a man who had never heard of Jesus. He was moved to tears. That's when it hit her. That she was the answer to her own question. What about the man on the island who had never heard? Well, God sent her to him. You know, God has ways to get the gospel to sincere hearts. And guess what? His way just might be you. Verse 7. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Their mission was to fetch Peter. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, as we've mentioned, when God does a work, he operates on both sides of the equation. Cornelius's men are en route as God tackles Peter's reluctance. It was noontime on the rooftop when Peter now sees a vision. And Joppa was the perfect backdrop for such a vision. You know, today there's a well-shaped fountain in the town center. It's a reminder of Jonah, from which uh, Jonah set sail from the port of Joppa. And you remember Jonah. Jonah was the bigoted prophet. He was prejudiced against Ninevites. He hated all Gentiles. In his heart and mind, God's salvation was for Jews only. But God altered Jonah's direction and his attitude. He stirred up a storm. He scared the ship's crew into slinging Jonah into the sea where a great fish swallowed him and then spit him up on the bank. And a humble and repentant Jonah then went on to preach to Assyria's Gentiles. Here God is at it again. He's in Joppa where he once more busts up the Jews only club. It's noon. The tropical heat is on the rise. Peter climbs to the rooftop patio to enjoy some shade, maybe cool off in the ocean breeze. And it's lunchtime. Then Peter became very hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Peter's stomach is growling. He's longing for a bowl of lentils or some good matzo ball. Or maybe a mutton sandwich. He'll settle for falafel. But God Himself serves Peter lunch. And Peter saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This huge picnic blanket floats down out of heaven. But all the entrees are non-kosher. Nothing Peter's being offered here is on the Jewish menu. See, God's tasty treats are flying in the face of what Peter's religion had taught him he could munch. And yet Peter hears the voice of God that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now realize, in the first century, both Jews and Gentiles were separated by pedigree and by circumcision and by Sabbath observances. But above all, Jews and Gentiles were defined by diet. A kosher Jew was religiously superior to a non-kosher Gentile. And that kosher Jew would never, in a million years, pull up to a table full of God-forbidden food, nor eat with folks who occupied that table. Jewish dietary laws were the epitome of religion. Yes, the distinction between clean and unclean had some definite health benefits, especially in a day when meat wasn't always properly prepared or refrigerated. But kosher laws were all part of a bigger picture. See, God had ingrained in his people, Israel, a sense of right and wrong. Almost every dimension of life was delineated as clean and unclean, or holy and unholy, or pure and impure, or acceptable to God and unacceptable to God. These distinctions were a grid that overlaid food and sacrifices and washings and houses and even people. See, the law provided you a means of differentiating good from bad, holy from unholy, clean from unclean. And by learning the law, you could pick out the good guys from the bad guys. In fact, this is the purpose behind not just Jewish religion, but all religion, Muslim religion and Buddhist religion and even pseudo-Christian religion. See, all religions define clean from unclean, acceptable from unacceptable. It contains standards. Religion contains taboos and rituals that allow you to label certain people pure and certain people defiled. Often liberal critics attack religion as the enemy of unity. They claim religion is the great divider in the world. Rather than bring us together, it keeps us apart. Religion separates us into factions and inflames hostilities. And in a sense, this is true. Every religion provides criteria that allows people to divide up humanity into the holy and into the unholy. And no other religion did this as comprehensively and as rigorously as did God's religion, Judaism. Kosher Jews were reminded at every mealtime that there was such a thing as right and wrong, holy and unholy. Good guys ate the clean foods. Bad guys ate the dirty birds. And Judaism did it end with diet. In fact, it did such a thorough job identifying good from bad that by the time you subjected your life to the entire Mosaic law, you had to conclude with what Rabbi Saul said in his letter to the Romans There is none righteous, no, not one. You see, an honest Old Testament Jew was forced to the uncomfortable conclusion that everybody is a bad guy. We're all sinners. Among humanity, there are no good guys. You see, this is why Christianity picks up where Judaism leaves off. We say this all the time, but without its full implication hitting us. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. See, religion chooses sides. It identifies the good guys from the bad guys, it assigns white hats and black hats, it awards merit badges to people for accumulating filthy rags. But that's not Christianity. The gospel declares that we're all bad guys. There's only one good guy, friends, and his name is Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to bring everybody to Jesus. Whether you're a Georgia Tech fan or a Georgia Bulldog fan. Whether you're a Mac user or a PC user. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You're still a bad guy and you need Jesus. Unrighteous bad guys and self-righteous bad guys. Secular bad guys and religious bad guys. Pew-sitting bad guys and pulpit-occupying bad guys. All of us need Jesus. Folks should no longer be categorized as clean and unclean, chosen or common. Jesus put an end to religion. Today, the line in the sand for all humankind is no longer the food we put in our mouth, but the faith we put in Jesus. God bestows favor, not on people who are religious, but on folks who come to Jesus by faith. See, here's what's happening in Peter's vision. God is replacing religion with salvation. Judaism was religion. It was God's religion, even a perfect religion. But it was still religion. Now God is putting religion on the shelf And he's choosing new terms for his covenant with mankind. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. Since none of us are good, salvation is all about grace. Love we don't deserve. And the only place you can find grace is at the cross of Jesus Christ. This was the lesson that God taught me when he introduced me to Calvary Chapel many years ago now. At the time, I was a straight-laced Baptist. I thought my rules and my religious compliance made me right with God. But Calvary Chapel was my heavenly vision. I went to California to the Calvary Chapel, and I saw long-haired hippies in bell-bottom jeans with electric guitars and drums, loving each other and singing praise to Jesus. Man, I always thought you had to dress up to go to church. In my frame of reference, there was no way you could have long hair and go to heaven. I've been told by pastors, no less, that electric drums, electric guitars and drums were the devil's music. And yet I'll never forget, God said to me, rise, Sandy, play and sing. (laughs) The love and the holiness I sensed at Calvary Chapel left me no choice. This was God. God. And obviously, God was not behaving according to the rules that I had been taught. Theologically, I believed in grace, but when I saw it in action, it challenged me. It forced me out of my comfort zone. And this is what it did for Peter. Suddenly, he realizes that you don't have to live up to his standards and his prejudices and his tradition to be accepted by God. If God calls a man clean, who is Peter to call him unclean? Only Jesus can make a person clean in God's eyes. Obviously, God was up to something new, but Peter wasn't sure what God was cooking up. He becomes reluctant, and thus his reply, verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And here, of course, is the ultimate oxymoron. You, can't, you can say not so friend, and you can say not so buddy, but you can't say not so Lord. The word Lord means master and boss. If Jesus is your Lord, you're under his command. Not so is a no-no. And yet I empathize with Peter's reluctance. Asking a good Jew to eat non-kosher would be like requiring a Die-hard vegan to pig out on a chili cheeseburger. I know some people that can't even think the thought of a thick chili cheeseburger. (laughs) They're repulsed. I can't think the thought of a salad with (laughs) tomatoes on it. But my point is, this was a complicated decision. Years of religious training and the bias it had created in him kept Peter hemmed in. He was trapped by three powerful forces, by principle, by prejudice, and by precedence. Understand, principles can either inform or misinform depending on how they're formed. Peter grew up a good Jewish boy. He kept kosher according to Leviticus 11 in the Mosaic Law. He considered, he ate and ordered only off the clean menu. In fact, his wife stopped at the deli with the Orthodox sticker in the window. Only that deli. Imagine, shrimp had never crawled across Peter's lips. Peter had never savored a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Man. Imagine this. Peter had never sat down and squeezed that bottle and watched that sauce lather up a plate of pork barbecue. He had never been there. And it was a matter of principle to him. Hey, I'll never doubt Peter's devotion to principle. In my mind, a life without pork barbecue rivals the zeal of a suicide bomber. So when God told Peter to eat unclean foods, it was as if 1,500 years of tradition, and the law of Moses, and thousands of rabbis, and his entire Jewish family were suddenly screaming in Peter's ear to ask for another menu. From birth, Peter's conscience had been drilled to keep kosher. This wasn't a simple preference. This was a deeply held matter of conscience. It was a principle to Peter. And yet, please notice this, a misinformed principle is what kept Peter on the wrong side of God's will. Understand, our conscience is an organ that we train to act on cue. The conscience is taught by both truth and then sometimes tradition, and thus it can fight against the Holy Spirit or it can be his ally. Peter needs to surrender his conscience to the lordship of Jesus. Some of Peter's principles were wrong. Some no longer applied. God was blazing a new trail here. A sovereign God is now stepping out. He's stepping out of the box and he's recruiting Peter to step out with him. But Peter has to cut ties with a long-held principle if he's going to be part of this work of grace. Peter was also trapped by prejudice. And don't ever underestimate the power of a prejudice. When Peter thought of eating pork or visiting Gentiles, it just didn't feel right. Whether it was right wasn't his biggest hurdle. This was outside his comfort zone. Prejudicial feelings caused his resistance to what was God's will. I know some prim and proper Baptists who would never come to church wearing short pants. It doesn't feel right. Or mow their lawns on Sunday afternoon. Man, working on Sunday, that just doesn't feel right. I've told my wife, mowing my lawn on Sunday afternoon doesn't feel right to me. She says, you need to get out there and do it anyway. (laughs) There are some things that don't feel right to you, but that doesn't make them wrong for someone else. And it doesn't make them wrong in the eyes of God. See, a Christian has to represent God's truth, not our own prejudices. To live by grace, I make the decision not to let my preferences or my feelings or my traditions govern my interactions. See, your prejudice will close the door to certain people. Grace keeps those doors open. And for Peter to obey God, he also had to step over a precedent. Notice he answered God. Nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. See, some behaviors, had just never, ever happened to Peter. Peter had never had sausage on his pizza. It just never happened. To eat it now would have been the first time. See, this is the type of conviction religious people usually applaud. We hold on to a tradition at the cost of great sacrifice. Well, Peter's doing the same here, but ironically, his commitment is working against God's will in his life. It can happen. See, some steps are hard to take just because we've never taken them before. God wants to do an exciting new work with Peter, take him to new places. Yet to obey God and go there, he has to step over a precedent. As I said, this was a tough decision for Peter. Perhaps this is why God repeated this vision three times. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Peter had to wrestle with his truth, and he had to end up discarding a prejudice. See, on the rooftop in Joppa, God was weaning Peter off religion so that he could embrace grace. And perhaps this is what needs to happen in your life. Unlike religion, Christianity is not a commitment to a principle or to a prejudice or to a precedent. Christianity is the pledge of allegiance to a person. It's all about Jesus. The ruler always trumps the rules. The Lord always overrides the law. A Christian's conscience is bound to one passion, and that's to follow Jesus. Will you go where he sends you, wherever that might be? Will you do what he says do? Will you love whoever he sends to your door? And there will always be a knock on your door. Verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Now, you see, we get grace from God, but then we give grace to everyone around us. And it's the giving of God's grace that makes life an adventure. You know, religion lived out is uniform and boring and mechanical and predictable, but grace lived out is wild and woolly. It's the call of the wild. Oh, it's orthodox to believe in grace, but it's really risky to practice grace. You apply grace and you'll be criticized by religious folks. Dare to extend grace and it'll put you in uncomfortable places with uncomfortable people dealing with uncomfortable situations. This is what happened to Peter. No sooner does God fold up the picnic blanket than three Gentiles, Romans no less, are knocking at his door, wanting him to go with them. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. And I love the encouragement that follows. Notice, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Doubting nothing. Peter, this is from me, God says. I sent them. Don't doubt, just act. You know, legalistic leanings can be deeply ingrained and can derail our faith. And this is why to live in God's grace, you have to remove all doubts. You have to act immediately and decisively when God begins to move. Well, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. A new venture of faith is about to begin. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him, fellow Jews. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am a man. Now I'm sure on the way from Joppa to Caesarea, Peter considered the implications of all this. A Jew was forbidden to even enter the home of a Gentile. Since it would defile him, he would become unclean. But Peter realizes that once you strip away religion, there's no difference at all between him and Cornelius. They both put their breeches on the same way. They're both bad guys in need of Jesus. And this is why Peter is so quick to admit that he's just a man. He's like every other man. Verse twenty seven. And as he taught with him, he went in and found many who had come together, all Gentiles now. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come now, therefore We are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. How's that for an invitation to a preacher? Hey, we're all ears, Peter. We're eager to learn. Come and teach us what God puts upon your heart to teach. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. It's not a great preacher that makes a great congregation, but a great congregation that makes a great preacher. That's what you have here. These people want, they, they're searching for God's truth and they want Peter to teach them. And then verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. Oh, prejudiced Peter's come a long way, hasn't he? He says, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, not just Israel, but every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Notice he doesn't talk anything about religion. He tells them all about Jesus. And we are witnesses of all things which he did. Both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day. And showed him openly. Not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, that is Jesus, all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now one word about religion, he teaches them and preaches them about Jesus. Peter preaches, and there's really nothing fancy or clever here or eloquent about his sermon. He just lays out the facts about Jesus. I wish all preachers preached like that. And notice this. And while Peter was still speaking these words, he hasn't even finished his sermon yet. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Peter wasn't even through with his sermon. He doesn't even have the opportunity to give his invitation or an altar call before he's interrupted by God's Spirit. God comes and fills them and saves them all. You know, it's funny, but Peter holds the unique distinction of being the only man interrupted by all three members of the Trinity. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was interrupted by God the Father, you remember. Several occasions, he was interrupted by God the Son, and here he's interrupted by God the Holy Spirit. There are times when we also need to be interrupted. We need to quiet our opinions and let the Holy Spirit speak into our situation. And those of the circumcision, or the Jews, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. The Jews who had come up from Joppa with Peter, they saw what had happened. I mean, they're they're trying to process this. Before Peter can brief the Gentiles on keeping kosher, before he can clip a single circumcision or make a sacrifice or even read the law, God had already saved the Italian guard just as he did the Jews back at Pentecost. And it had absolutely nothing to do with religion. It had nothing to do with anything but God's grace and their faith. It was all about amazing grace. And they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. I mean, the same evidence of the filling of the Spirit that the Jews received at Pentecost is now apparent among the Gentiles in Caesarea. Apparently, the Gentiles had entered the same covenant in the same way as had the Jews. Well, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In essence, they were baptized as Christians, not as Jews. Then they asked Peter to stay a few days. You know, throughout the Old Testament, you had to be a child of Abraham to be a child of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took away the sins of the whole world, not just the Jews. Access to God was now available to all people of all races, of all nations. You know, it's often been said the only level ground in all the world is at the foot of the cross. Today, friends, the in crowd, the only in crowd that matters are those who are in Christ. And yet, sadly, that's not the case in some churches. You know, I still see leaders today that lay down their own law. Folks who conform are given special status. They ride in the front of the bus while other believers ride in the back of the bus. It seems that some churches divide people into coach and first class. It's a religious caste system. It's the opposite of grace. There should be no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. If God loves you, why can't I? If God has accepted you, so do I. If you're special in the eyes of God, you're special to me. Never forget what Peter learned. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Later, he'll send a letter to all believers to tell us we're complete in Christ, not because we tow the party line. This was an amazing adventure for a good Jew like Peter. Think of it. Gentiles knock on his door. He travels with Gentiles to a Gentile city. He enters a Gentile home. Then he preaches to a room full of Gentiles. In a sense, Peter just goes up the coast. But in another sense, Acts chapter 10 was the shot heard round the world. Jewish rabbis would have said that a Gentile wasn't worthy to set foot under the same roof as a Jew. And yet by the end of the day, Gentile believers know the same God, they participate in the same covenant, and they enjoy the same Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts as the Jewish believers. You see, the future of Christianity was forever altered by Peter's obedience to this heavenly vision. Closer to home, you and I owe our place in God's family to Peter's courage. Next time you sit down and eat a big old pork barbecue sandwich, you need to tip your hat to Peter, friends. And may we also spread God's grace and dare to move out of our comfort zone into new ventures of grace. Father, we thank you.